All right, let me open us in prayer and we'll get going this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for another opportunity to come together and to study your word today. And so, Lord, I pray that uh, you would help us to focus on your word this morning, that we would uh, love everything that you have to say to us here, uh, particularly in the book of Hebrews. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd bless our time together and that you'd give us attentive minds and spirits. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 4 this morning, so go ahead and turn there. Hebrews 4, and we'll be starting with verse 14 and working our way through most of the way through chapter 5 today. And uh, just by way of uh, review, if you guys remember, we've been talking about this over and over again. I've been rehearsing it as we've started every week, but I'll just bring it up again here. Can someone tell me what is the major or the chief theme of the book of Hebrews? What, what is the main point that our author wants to get across to everybody? That's right. Christ is superior. Superior to what? Everything. everything. That's right. Trick question. He's superior to everything. And so what our author does is he goes through, essentially, throughout this book, a list of things that Christ is superior to. All right? Christ is superior to the prophets. He's superior to the angels. And so in that way, our author is emphasizing the fact that Jesus is superior to all of the various messengers that God used to bring his message to the people in the Old Testament and in the New Testament too. Because the angels didn't just bring God's word to the prophets or to the Israelites, but the angels also brought the message of Christ to Mary. Right? They declared Jesus' birth when Jesus was born and all of that. So Jesus here is superior to the prophets. He's superior to the angels. And then thirdly, Jesus, as we've talked about the last few weeks, is superior to the person of Moses. Jesus is superior to Moses, okay? And uh, we talked about this the last couple of weeks, that what's happening throughout the book of Hebrews is that we have a kind of escalation of the argument, okay? Because our author's starting with angels and prophets. He's starting with the messengers of God and how Christ is superior to them. And then, as he climbs in his argument, he gets to the next major point, which is that Jesus is superior not just to God's messengers, but that Jesus is superior to the mediator of the Old Covenant, which is a significant climb there, from just going from messengers to now he's going to the mediator, Moses, who you could call maybe the chief figure of Old Testament history. Okay? So that is significant. And now, what we have going on today in our passage, which I'm going to read in just a second, is another escalation. We move from messengers to mediator to now the fact that Christ is superior to Aaron. And that is the major point that we're going to be on for a couple of weeks, because that theme is going to continue all the way throughout to the end of chapter 7, and even beyond that in some cases. But Jesus is superior to Aaron. That's the point. And when we say Aaron, we're not just talking about, you know, the simple person of Aaron, but we're talking about the office of Aaron, which is the priesthood. So you could really say that the whole point for the next few weeks that we'll be looking at is that Jesus is superior to the Old Testament priesthood. And we're going to look at that very carefully here this morning. So let me read for you our text which is from Hebrews chapter 4, beginning with verse 14, and we're going to go through chapter 5, verse 10. 
And so hear what uh, the author has to say to us here this morning. So beginning with chapter 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So again, as I was mentioning before, our author is now continuing his argument and he's escalating the argument. He's now going to start to treat on the subject of Christ's superiority, not just how it relates to the way that God reveals himself through the prophets and the angels, and not just the way that God delivered the law through Moses, the mediator of the Old Covenant, but now we have Christ being described as superior to the very way that Israel received atonement in the Old Covenant. Now, we want to be a little bit careful with that because the sacrifices of the Old Testament that were mediated through the priesthood were not, strictly speaking, uh, full atonements like Jesus was. Right? The sacrifices of the bulls and goats couldn't take away sins permanently. Right? That They were weak in that regard. But for the Old Testament Israelite, this was how they approached God. They had to do so through the sacrifices that were mediated by the Old Testament priesthood. And so what the author of Hebrews is doing now is he's saying, look, the very ways that you Jews were attempting to, uh, to secure atonement for yourselves through the Old Testament priesthood, yeah, that stuff, that's all fulfilled by Christ. Jesus is greater than all of that. And the first thing that he's going to do, our author, as he's going to explain this to us, is he's going to tell us a little bit about the priesthood itself. And so our text today breaks down into two major sections. The first section here in verses 1 through 5 are the qualifications for an Old Testament priest. All right, what does it take to be a high priest? What, what kind of things do you need to have in that priestly person in order for them to be designated as a high priest. Okay? That's the first thing, the qualifications. And then the second thing, in verses 6 all the way through verse 10, 
is how our author is going to show that Jesus fulfills those specific qualifications for high priest. And in fact, as he's going to hint here and as he's going to explain much more carefully elsewhere, Jesus actually fulfills the requirements for high priest far better than any of the Levites, than any of the the tribe that uh, the, the priest came out of, or better than the sons of Aaron themselves. So, qualifications for a priest, and then how Christ fulfills the qualifications. That's how the text is moving here. All right, so qualifications for a priest. What does the author of Hebrews tell us about what is required to be a high priest? Now, there are three qualifications that he lists here for us. And the first one, you can see in verse 1 here, chapter 5. Here's the first qualification. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. All right, so that first qualification then is requiring that a priest needs to be chosen from men. That is, he needs to be a human being. The priest has to be a man. And why does he have to be a man? He's got to be a man because he has to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins on behalf of men. So if you're going to have a, a priest, the priest has to be a human being because that human being is going to act as the mediator for men. Right? You can't have... Uh, a non-human being mediating for human beings. That's just not going to work. you got to have a human being. And so that's why in the Old Covenant you had human priests. They were, in a certain sense, sort of mediators. They were people that stood between an unholy people and a holy God. And they, on behalf of the people, offered sacrifices They would cleanse and purify themselves through special rituals that God provided in order to go before God in his holy tabernacle or in his holy temple and to come before God on behalf of the people and provide atonement through the sacrifices. That was the task of the priest. They had to mediate. They had to be the ones on behalf of the people to act for them. And in order to do that, they had to be human beings. So that's the first qualification that's being outlined for us here. And in fact, this is precisely why, if you flip back a few pages to chapter 2, you don't have to do this, but I want to read for you a couple of verses from there. This is why the author of Hebrews says this in chapter 2, verse 14. He says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people." And so there you can see our author is hinting earlier on that if Jesus is going to be a high priest, he's going to need to be made human in every respect. This is why it's so important for us to recognize that Jesus not only has a divine nature, that is, Jesus is not simply God, though he is God and 
totally fully God. But at the same time, Jesus, when he became man, took upon himself a human nature. This is why in Reformed theology, we hold so fast to this understanding that we need to maintain that Jesus had a true human nature. And because we hold fast to that, that works itself out in a lot of different areas of our theology. We talked about one of those areas when we were dealing with the sacraments and the Lord's Supper. And we said that Jesus cannot be physically present in the Supper in his humanness. Why? Well, because human natures can't be omnipresent. That's not human. That is utterly repugnant to humanness. And so we really want to hold fast to the fact that Jesus is truly human in every respect. And it's not because we like to create theological squibbles and quabbles with other traditions, but it's because we hold fast to what Hebrews is saying here. Jesus had to be man in every respect because that is the qualification of a high priest. Fully, truly human. And it's kind of a funny thing that the author of Hebrews has to continually repeat this theme throughout the book because in the early church, the, the, the apostles had to deal a lot with people who were trying to say that Jesus wasn't human. One of the major views about this was a, a heresy called docetism. And docetism just comes from the Greek word docheo, which means to seem or to appear. Okay, And so the idea of docetism was that Jesus, when he came to earth, he simply appeared to be human. He seemed to be human, but he actually wasn't. He was God, but he was just pretending to be a human being. He was sort of a phantom. And what, you know, in 1 John, for example, the Apostle John had to deal with that kind of heresy. And he's like, no, no, Jesus did not just seem to be human. He had to be human in every respect like us if he was going to function as our high priest. That is essential for the doctrine of the gospel. And so that's what Hebrews is bringing out here. Jesus is truly human in every respect, right? All right, that's the first qualification. Then. First thing that a high priest needs to be is a human being so he can be a mediator. Second thing that a priest needs to be is he needs to suffer. And this is in verses 2 and 3. Here's what Hebrews says. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. So a high priest not only needs to be a human mediator, but a high priest also needs to be weak. He needs to suffer. He needs to undergo the same things that the people whom he's mediating for are undergoing. And so when we talk about the high priest suffering, is that he needs to undergo all of the ailments of humanness. He needs to undergo all of the ailments of temptation from without. All right? That is what the high priest needs to do. And if you think about it, this is the same sort of thing that Jesus had to undergo. Jesus didn't just have to be man in some sort of abstract philosophical way. Jesus needed to be true man as a quality for his high priesthood because he needed to undergo all of the ailments of humanness. He needed to suffer throughout his life. And we talk about this in theology as as Jesus, as he was humiliated, that is, as he was become man, 
It's not just that Jesus suffered on the cross, or that he suffered when he was whipped, or that he suffered through being a sacrifice. But Jesus himself suffered throughout his entire earthly life. And he underwent all of the ailments of humanness. Hunger, and thirst, and and sleep, and all of those sorts of things Jesus underwent. That was all part of his suffering as he was on this earth. Okay, So... That's the second qualification here. First one, has to, a priest has to be a, a human mediator. Secondly, the priest has to suffer. Thirdly, and finally, the last qualification of a high priest that's indicated here is that he needs to be called by God. And here's what we read in verse 4. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God just as Aaron was. So there's your third qualification. If if you're going to have a high priest, they got to be human, they have to suffer like humans, and then thirdly, they have to be called by God. They have to be appointed. They don't just get to become a priest just because they feel like it one day and just decide, oh yeah, you know, I'll become a priest today. No, they have to be called by God. It's a special task appointed to them by the Almighty. And so God appointed the tribe of Levi in the Old Testament to be the tribe of priests. He appointed the sons of Aaron to be priests. They didn't do that on their own. They didn't take that task themselves. God gave it to them. And so what's sort of implied here is that God can appoint whomever he wants to be a priest. He can appoint whomever he wants. It doesn't have to be from a particular tribe. And that's important because Jesus was not from the tribe of Levi. Jesus was not a descendant of the sons of Aaron. Jesus is a descendant of the tribe of Judah. All right? So God can appoint whomever he wants. And this is why, by the way, our author is bringing up here the subject of Jesus being a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And we'll talk a lot more specifically about Melchizedek when we get to chapter 7. But Melchizedek was not of the tribe of Levi. Melchizedek was not one of the sons of Aaron, yet he was a priest way back in the days of Abraham. Right? So God can appoint whomever he wants to be priests. Uh, so that's, that's important to know. It's not based on a specific tribe necessarily. All right, so those are the three qualifications of a priest. You've got to be a human mediator. You've got to suffer like humans. And then thirdly, you've got to be called by God. Those are the qualifications. Now, the second part of our passage is our author explaining how Jesus fulfills these qualifications. He's not content just to tell us abstractly about the priesthood. Now, the whole point of this is to show Jesus is a high priest. And here's how he fulfills these conditions. Verse 7. Look at what he says here. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. So there you have, first of all, our author showing that Jesus was and is a human mediator. Jesus fulfills that first qualification of the priest to be a human mediator. You can see he emphasizes that Jesus is, In the days of his flesh, 
showing and emphasizing Jesus became true man. He took upon himself human flesh, a human nature, we would say. And when he took upon himself a human nature, right, he offered up prayers and supplications to God. That is the peculiar task of a mediator. And if you think about it, the the way that our author describes this here is he's describing the kinds of prayers that are recorded for us in the gospel accounts. Jesus underwent extreme anguish and tears. Indeed, he sweat blood when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying to the Father about his mission that he was about to undertake. But also, if you go to John chapter 17, there we have recorded for us the high priestly prayer. And it's in that prayer where Jesus goes before the Father and he pours out his heart to him and he says, Oh, Father, I do not pray for the world, but I pray for the ones whom you have given to me, the elect. Jesus there is functioning as a priestly mediator, coming before God on behalf of an unholy people. That's what our author is talking about here. Jesus is the human mediator. So he fulfills that first qualification of priesthood. Then you have the second one. The second qualification is suffering. Well, lo and behold, the next one that our author treats is how Jesus suffered. Verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus, in his earthly life, suffered. It's not just that he suffered on the cross. It's not just that he suffered when he was beaten and mocked and afflicted. But Jesus suffered throughout his whole earthly life. And you you can just imagine this for a second. If the God of the universe, completely limitless, no boundaries, no weaknesses, no anything... If he took upon himself a human nature and became a human being like us and came down to this earth in space and time. I mean, you want to talk about suffering. That's some suffering right there. That is some significant change. He left his heavenly throne in a certain sense in his humanness. And he came to earth and he became like one of us and was born in a stable. That is the suffering of Christ. And he suffered throughout his whole life. And he learned obedience, we're told. There's a sense in which here Jesus, through his suffering on this earth, undergoing the ailments of humanity, undergoing temptation through sin, that Jesus himself proved his obedience. And in fact, Jesus proved his obedience when Israel failed in their obedience. And this is actually very explicit in the gospel accounts. You go and you compare what happened in Israel. Israel in the desert, they come out of the Exodus. Right? What do they do? Well, they create a golden calf and they worship an idol. And the Israelites then shortly after that decide that it's a good idea to question whether God will provide food for them. And so they complain to God about food and they complain to him about water. And they manifest their unbelief and disobedience as we saw a few weeks ago. And then not only that, but when they finally get to the land of Canaan, God says, I will give you the nations as your inheritance. Well, then they don't trust him and they don't go in. They're scared of the giants in the land. 
and they fail because of disobedience, and they all die in the wilderness. That was Israel undergoing temptation. They failed miserably. They manifested their disobedience. But then, Jesus comes along. And where Israel was tempted in the wilderness for 40 years, Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. And what are the the, the temptations that Satan brings to him, but the exact same temptations that Israel underwent in their wilderness temptation? Where Israel was tempted and they bowed down and they worshipped an idol, the golden calf, Jesus refused to bow down and to worship Satan. Where Israel questioned and disobeyed God and didn't think that he would provide food for them, Satan comes along and says, hey, Jesus, turn these stones into bread. And Jesus says, no, God provides. He didn't question. When Israel failed to go and take the nations when God commanded them to do it, Satan tried to offer the nations to Jesus. And Jesus said, no, God has not given them to me yet. You see, Jesus overcame all of the temptations in the wilderness. And so he, in his suffering, showed, proved, learned his obedience before God. And this is what makes Jesus a better high priest than all of the rest of the priests of the Old Testament. Because the priests of the Old Testament not only had to come and offer sacrifices on behalf of the people, but the priests of the Old Testament... They themselves had sinned, and they had to undergo all kinds of special rituals and ceremonies just to make themselves clean enough to come into the presence of God and to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. But Jesus never had to offer any sacrifices for himself. Jesus never had to go and had to undergo any kind of special rituals to make himself clean. Jesus himself was already that way. And so Jesus is the greater priest because he comes into the picture and he can offer a perfect, true, genuine sacrifice for all of God's people for all time. And we'll see how the author of Hebrews unpacks that particular truth later on when we get to chapter 10. But for right now, just notice, Jesus fulfills here the second qualification of being a priest. He suffered. And then thirdly, the third qualification is that a priest needs to be appointed by God. And we see this here in verses 9 and 10. And we'll jump up to a couple other verses too. But starting with verse 9. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who believe, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And there he's just summarizing what it says up in verse 6 as he quotes Psalm 95, where God in that psalm says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek himself we'll talk about in a little while, but the point here is that Jesus has been appointed by God to be a high priest. And one of the things that makes this so interesting is that if you were to go back and read Psalm 95, it's actually a very short psalm. It's only a few verses. But in Psalm 95, we have the very fact of of God and Jesus being presented 
as rulers. Jesus there in Psalm, 90, or in Psalm 95 is presented as, as uh, someone who wields a scepter. That he wears royal garments. That he judges the nations. That his right hand is in the place of power. And it's in that psalm that we have Jesus, as he's described in all of this kingly splendor, that all of a sudden, there's this random, seemingly random, verse inserted in there. Jesus is the king. He's sitting at the right hand of power. He wields a scepter. He'll judge the nations. Oh, and by the way, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. As we'll learn later on, Melchizedek was a priest, and he was also a king. He was simultaneously both offices. And that is exactly who Jesus is. He is a priest king. He is greater than all of the Old Testament priests because it's not just that he goes in and offers the sacrifices as if he's got a limited religious function in the temple. But Jesus, as a priest, is simultaneously ruler of the whole universe. He rules. And he atones. This is how Jesus can be greater than the Old Testament priesthood. They could atone, but they couldn't rule. Old Testament kings could rule, but they couldn't atone. Whereas Jesus can rule and atone. He can do all of it. And this is how he can be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a priest king. And he wasn't of the tribe of Levi. He wasn't of the tribe of Aaron. Yet his priesthood was superior to the priesthood of the Levites and the priesthood of Aaron. And we'll talk more specifically about all of that in in the future. But just notice here, bringing this all home. Here we have the author of Hebrews clearly proclaiming to us. we We can't argue with this at all. That Jesus fulfills all three prime qualifications to be our high priest. And in response to this, in terms of applying this, what does this mean for his readers? We see that in verse 14 of chapter 4. The author of Hebrews actually has the application on the front end. Of this treatment. And here's what he says Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, here's the injunction. Here's what we need to do. Here's our response to this great truth. Let us then, with confidence, Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Now you want to know, how does this apply to me? What what does this mean for me that Jesus is the high priest? There it is right there. With Jesus as the high priest, with him as the human mediator who suffered as we have yet without sin and who has been called by God to a priesthood forever, a kingly priesthood. The result of all of this is that you get to come boldly before the throne of grace as a believer in Christ. 
You get to come boldly to that throne of grace. And you know what? Not only do we get to do that in the last day, when we come before God at the final judgment, we go to be with Him forever. We don't just get to approach the throne of grace then, but we get to approach the throne of grace spiritually now. And in fact, that's what we're going to do in just a few minutes when we enter into corporate worship. We get to boldly come before our God, come to His throne of grace, because Jesus has created that pathway as our high priest. And we're going to see in future weeks how this continues to unfold and impact what he's saying here, that we can approach the throne of grace through the work of Christ. He is our high priest, called by God, and he is superior to all other priests. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for another wonderful text from the book of Hebrews. And Lord, we pray that you would work this truth deeply within our hearts. And we pray, Lord, that you would use this now to prepare us to worship you in spirit and in truth this morning and to hear your word preached. We pray all these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen. Verses specifically from chapter 4. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, so 14 through 16, then. Yeah, that's good. Hey, Robert, speaking of funny names you're never going to forget, in Yazoo City right now, I don't know if you know the, the name of the sheriff there, his last name is Sheriff. Yeah, Sheriff Sheriff. Sheriff Sheriff. I just heard that the other day. I'm like, wow, that is hilarious. And it's on his car, Sheriff Sheriff. Yeah. <laughs>
Billy Ray, how you doing? I'm doing good. You go ahead. I can't do any work. It's all good.